gentlemen, cats and kittens, listeners and eavesdroppers, medical professionals or students, and generally interested public, welcome to yet another episode of How to Win Friends and Influenza. I'm your host, Lily. Now, this podcast is all about different careers in medicine, but no conversation about doctor life is complete unless we also talk about other health professionals we interact with. So today's source of wisdom comes from an area of health dealing with a very, very important weapon in any doctor's armory. That's medications. That's right. Today we're talking to a pharmacist. Now, we have on the show Alan, who's a pharmacist, and he's one of those people that you could talk about many, many interesting facts about. But I'm not going to go for one million facts. I'm just going to restrict it to three interesting facts today. So number one... Alan owns the most amazing green Christmas tie. Number two, Alan is the Richard Mercer of pharmacists with a smooth, comforting radio voice that you will soon look forward to hearing. And number three, um, I actually headhunted Alan from a hospital orchestra that we played in together, but when he's not making amazing music on his bass clarinet, he's actually a manufacturing pharmacist in a major teaching hospital. So I'd like to welcome on the show, Alan. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lily. Boy, that sounds like quite an introduction. I hope I can live up to your expectations, <laughs> particularly that part about the green tie, oh, which yes. I only wear maybe once every three years. <laughs> That's how it stays in great condition. Yes. But the best part of all of that is that it's all true. But getting into the show, well, you're a pharmacist and you work in a hospital, but wait, wait, wait. when did we let pharmacists out of the community and into hospitals? Well, that's an interesting question because when I tell people that I'm a pharmacist and I work in a hospital, some people actually look at me with a strange look and think, do they actually have pharmacists in hospitals? Uh, Some people actually think that I run a chemist shop and that I'm selling cosmetics and batteries. But the fact of the matter is, um, well, as long as we've had hospitals in the modern world, we needed to have people to dispense and oversee the management of medications in hospitals. So I think you'll find that um, hospital pharmacists are really unsung heroes um, in the healthcare arena. And look, I really welcome the opportunity to showcase to a wider audience what a hospital pharmacist can do. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the public has this perception that chemists work on the, you know, in the shop down the street, sorry, pharmacists work in the chemist down the street. Um, but there's actually quite a lot of important work they do in hospitals, a lot of different areas. Um, so for yourself, you're a manufacturing pharmacist, but other specialties also exist. For example, um, NICU pharmacy, that's neonatal um, ICU pharmacy, maybe various other bits of pharmacy that you can tell us about. So what are the types you could do in hospitals? Hmm. So I think you find that with the complexity of therapeutics these days, there has created a need for someone to be the medication specialist in those various specialties. So at Westmead Hospital, for example, as well as our NICU pharmacist, we have a dedicated ICU pharmacist. Um, We have a renal pharmacist. We have an aged care pharmacist. We have a lot of oncology pharmacists. We have a neurology pharmacist. Um, have I missed anyone out? We, we have, um, I guess, a psychiatric pharmacist. 
Um, so really, with the complexity um, of medications these days, I think that has created a need for someone to be the specialist in medications and uh, pharmacists being as resilient as, resilient as they are, have, I guess, created that niche market. Right. And let's step back a bit and actually talk about what is pharmacy? What does a pharmacist do? Yeah. You've got a degree in pharmacy, but what does that degree involve? What kind of tasks? Mm -hmm. So, look, I'm really amazed at how much pharmacy students actually learn these days. So they learn a lot about pharmacology, about how drugs work, about interactions, about dosages. Um, they also study a lot into um, evidence-based medicine. So what we're particularly interested in is the evidence behind different therapeutic options. Um, so I think certainly in a hospital setting, uh, that makes a hospital pharmacist very valuable, particularly to doctors and to other um, allied health uh, workers, because we can offer assistance when it comes to determining the most appropriate dose for a particular patient. We can help to identify drug interactions. We can help to monitor for side effects. We know a lot about different dosage forms, so we can help doctors in the day-to-day -day prescribing. Um, so there's really a lot that we can offer, I think, particularly to young doctors who are fresh out of uni who might not you know, be familiar with all of the different dosage forms and brand names out there. So we're basically here to help. Yeah, it sounds like we should be nice to you because you guys are pretty nice to us. <laughs> uh, look, um, I think it's really important for healthcare workers to work as part of a, a larger team. And I think that there's a lot of evidence out there that that's what really works and results in better health outcomes. So I think having pharmacists as part of the multidisciplinary team is really great. And I can say from experience, and I can speak on behalf of my colleagues in saying that that really makes our job much more rewarding when we can have that interaction with different um, healthcare workers, particularly doctors, and feel valued and appreciated for what we can offer. And I think we can offer a lot mm. as well. Yeah, and speaking of the team aspect, um, what I observe to be one difference between community and hospital pharmacy is in hospital pharmacy, you've got a large pharmacy uh, department, you've got a lot of co-workers you can interact with. In some of the community pharmacists, um, you know, there's just one pharmacist, quite a lot of retail staff, quite a lot of other staff, but it seems a little bit more of a, a lonely sort of profession. Um, so what are the big differences between community and hospital pharmacy? So I think one obvious um, difference is the, the business aspect mm -hmm. of community pharmacy, that you are really there to make a profit. Uh, I think having said that, look, I've worked in community pharmacy. You can certainly make a professional career out of it if you want to. Um, there's a concept uh, in community pharmacy circles called forward pharmacy, which is basically the pharmacist moving out from the dispensary and spending time talking to customers or patients and just teasing out what their healthcare needs are. And I guess just being proactive and... Um, you know, just making the job a profession. Um, I guess in hospital pharmacy, you don't have that retail aspect. 
so you can afford to, to actually focus and concentrate on the professional aspects of pharmacy, which is really about medication management, about working as part of a healthcare team. Um, so those would be the fundamental differences. Right, and now focusing in on your area in pharmacy, you're a manufacturing pharmacist. So can you tell us what that involves? Mm -hmm. So look, traditional pharmacy was really about manufacturing and compounding. Um, if you go back to the 1940s, um, you'll find that what a community pharmacist did or a hospital pharmacist did, most of their day was actually compounding. They'd be mixing medicines, they'd be making creams, making mixtures, even making capsules. But post-World War II was when we started to see the mass production of pharmaceuticals. So drug companies took over the role of compounding and they mass-produced a lot of medicines. Um, so that was probably a good thing because it meant a higher level of standardization. Um, it meant that we could mass produce products. So there were you know, economies of scale, you know, the advantages of mass producing products. But we did realize over time that there were always patients who couldn't take a mass produced product. So it could be because they're allergic to one of the excipients it could be because they have such a rare condition that there really isn't a commercial market for a drug company to actually make it. And this is where compounding or manufacturing comes in. So particularly at Westmead Hospital, because of the nature of our patients, they're often you know, really sick patients who have been referred to us from the smaller hospitals. We often have a need to manufacture products which are not commercially available or we have patients with special needs where there is no commercial product available for them. And that's where I come in. So my role is to oversee the manufacturing of products at Westmead Hospital. Um, so you mentioned um, our NICU patients before, our neonatal intensive care patients. So many of the babies who are born in our NICU department are premature. Um, they don't have functioning livers and they often need very fractional doses of medicines. So obviously you can't, for example, divide a tablet up into twelfths mm. to give the dose that you need for this baby. And also you want to avoid all of those excipients because their bodies can't handle them. And that's where manufacturing comes in. It's about personalising medicine to those patients who can't take the mass-produced products. Right, and that definitely sounds like an area that doctors need a bit of help with. Just imagine you're a junior doctor, you're trying to prescribe something. You can't really, like you said, say, let's take a 12th of this medication, mix it with one-sixth of this other medication and just be some mad scientist doing it all yourself. So definitely manufacturing pharmacy has a big role to play in, in helping um, with individual circumstances. So do you uh, prepare them on an individual case-by-case -case basis or are there common um, scenarios that you would you know, mass prepare a couple of um, mixtures for? Mm -hmm. So the short answer is we try to make products on demand. So because we aren't a TGA licensed facility, um, that is we're not, I guess, a mass producing mm -hmm. drug company, we should be making things on demand. 
Um, that's what all of the standards in manufacturing say these days. So it would be better to actually wait until you get an order for a particular patient and then tailor make it to that patient rather than mass producing products and having them sitting on your shelf. I mean, having said that, there are some products that we do make on a batch uh, basis because these are products which are not commercially available that we do have a market for. So it's, you know, for example, we, we might have outpatients who need um, a topically applied cream for neuropathic pain, you know, who have gone through the, the, the gamut of all of the pharmacological treatments. And as you know, neuropathic pain is a very hard pain to treat. So we actually manufacture a, a ketamine cream, which is like third or fourth line for neuropathic pain. So because these are patients who are, of, who are often needed, who come to Westmead as outpatients, we do actually make it in batches of five. So that way it's always available for those patients who front up at the outpatient pharmacy with their script for ketamine cream. Right, so it sounds like in general, um, individual on-demand is the way to go. You don't want things to expire, but there are a couple of um, circumstances that do happen um, that you can expect and then you would do batch. So it sounds like we're really heading towards the individualized medicine approach, which is, which is really great. And it's actually very comforting to know that we're not just restricted to the medications that are on the shelves. You can actually be a bit creative and um, mix and match and come up with new medications that can be even more effective. But how do you get the evidence base or how do you get the genius to, to mix these things together? Like, how do you know what chemicals work together? Okay, so you mentioned something before about the mad scientist. So this really brings out the mad scientist in me. So look, the, the first thing I'll mention is that the medicines which are mass produced um, have to undergo stringent testing. So if you're a TGA licensed manufacturer, you know, which all of the drug companies are, um, as well as making your product, you then have to do testing on, you know, X percentage of your batch to make sure that it's actually safe and that it's within the allowable limits of the active ingredient. When we compound or manufacture in a hospital setting, none of our products undergo that sort of testing. So compounding is considered to be a high-risk activity because you don't have those TGA safeguards. So as much fun as it might be to be concocting medicines, the standards these days tell us that we shouldn't be compounding unless we have a genuine need. So if you were a doctor and you came to me mm -hmm. with your mad scientist prescription, <laughs> uh, look, I'd be looking at the evidence behind, you know, whether we really should be making this. I mean, um, I mentioned before about evidence-based practice. So even as a manufacturing pharmacist, I'd like to understand that what you're asking me to make does have some evidence behind it. Because if not, then we're not doing the best by our patient. Um, if we as a team decide that yes, we should be compounding a product for this patient, my thought processes would be look what papers have been published, what formula did they use, um, and thinking about that formula, I'll be thinking about look, is it really safe for the patient? Is there anything else that um, you know we need to think about? Uh, for example, is the consistency of the final product going to be acceptable for the patient? 
You often find that with the papers which are published on these weird and wonderful treatments, there's not a lot of detail into how the product was manufactured because these papers are written by doctors who have more of an interest in the outcomes, like we're treating a patient with you know, product X, the outcome was this, without really looking at the process of making product X. So that's when the expertise of a manufacturing pharmacist comes into play. So I'll be looking at, you know, how safe is this? Um, how do we make it? Um, I'd probably want to do a test run just to see that the product turns out okay. And what do you mean by a test run? On the patient or just test run mixing it and feeding it to a rat or something? Uh, basically the latter. Um, <laughs> We don't use patients as guinea pigs. Admittedly, I have used some of my colleagues as guinea pigs. And, um, you know, they're still talking to me, so that's a good thing. So, for example, with a topical cream, so I might be looking at a suitable base. So a recent example would be an ID doctor uh, approached me about making a Sodofovir topical preparation for resistant genital herpes. So I was looking at a suitable base to, um, to make that in, and I decided on a water-missable base. I actually decided on KY jelly in the end, which many people will know is a personal lubricant. But I wanted to make sure that it would actually feel okay when you apply it on the skin. Um, I mean, you expect it would. But I wanted to see what would happen if I diluted X amount of KY jelly with X amount of water, because that would simulate what would happen when I mixed Sodofibu injection with the KY jelly base. Um, and I think that's a good way to go, because things don't always go according to plan. So you always plan for the worst and you plan for the unexpected. And in my experience, because we are making something for the first time often, uh, things can go wrong. So I think you, you kind of need to be prepared and you, you don't want the patient to be the one to tell you, you know, that ointment, you know, smelt like mm. rat poo. <laughs> you know, why couldn't you put something in it to, you know, mask that, <laughs> you know, horrendous smell? You don't want patients to be telling yeah. you that. And I think yeah. everyone's going to be curious about the outcome of that story. Was the texture of the jelly and the water, did that come out the way you wanted? It did, okay, yeah. Okay. And it's absorbed quite well across the skin. So it's intended for mucous membranes. KY jelly is intended to be a personal lubricant, but it's absorbed quite well across the skin. Yeah, okay. So that's really interesting. So um, people come to you with a kind of a mission, something to make, and you do a test run before you release it onto the patient. But at the very beginning, how do you get recruited to help with that particular patient's care? Is it um, you identify in the med charts that this patient needs a bit of help or does a doctor come to you or is there a big team meeting or how does it happen? So it could be any of the above. Okay. So it could be a doctor who wants to try, I guess, a treatment um, that might be quite obscure because they've tried all of the conventional treatments and look, this doesn't work. Or it could be because all of the conventional treatments might, might not be suitable for a patient and they've looked up papers which have described another treatment. Uh, look, it could be a ward pharmacist who's identified a patient who could benefit from a compounded product. Um, to give you an example, Vendafaxine um, is an antidepressant. 
and for a patient with a nasogastric tube, because they come in capsules, um, you'll find that there's little pellets inside the capsules and those pellets can easily block a nasogastric tube. So for a patient with a fine bore nasogastric tube, if you try to flush those pellets down the tube, you'll block it. So I can compound a mixture by crushing those granules and you know, mixing it with a suitable base. So sometimes it could be a ward pharmacist identifying that need. Sometimes it could even be a nurse or allied health member who thinks, you know, what are the options for this patient? They can't swallow this tablet. They can't use this cream because, look, there's something about it. There could be an excipient that doesn't agree with the patient. So I guess um, the request or the concept could come from anyone. But certainly, I would encourage the use of any commercial product if it's um, appropriate for the patient right. because of those safeguards. Yeah, so manufacturing custom um, medications, that would be a last resort, I take it. So um, that means if the conventional medicines, things that are already available <clears throat> aren't suitable, <clears throat> then you would go for um, this sort of uh, genius mad scientist sort of option. Would you ever um, go for a customized option just to get better results? Suppose there are conventional options, but you just think, oh, if I mix these things together, it would be even more superior, or is it strictly last resort? Mm. So, look, that's an interesting question. So I think you need to understand that all of the TGA medicines, or most of them, would have undergone clinical trials um, and there'd be a lot of evidence to show just how effective they are. So I guess we're coming back to this concept of evidence-based medicine. So can I, with my mad scientist mm. skills, produce a product which is superior for a patient? I'm kind of thinking if that was the case, someone would have done it already. And I think you need to be critical in your thinking, in evaluating, look, what is going to be superior? You know, is there a magic potion? Um, I guess it's like those current affair programs who often talk about breakthroughs. You know, this is the latest breakthrough for breast cancer. You know, this is the latest breakthrough for, you know, warts. It's something that sells and sounds really great. But I think you'll find in practice, breakthroughs happen over time through the accumulation of evidence. So I would feel less confident in my ability to compound that breakthrough, you know, optimal, superior treatment, because there really wouldn't be a lot of evidence behind it. So as much as I, I love what I do, um, I'd have to say that in terms of evidence, we really should be looking at those commercial products first. And if they don't work, then let's think about the compounding side. Right, so it sounds like Go with the evidence base because that's what's been tested, what's been better established, unless there's a reason to deviate, such as a last resort because a patient can't um, take particular medications. Yeah. So we don't really try and experiment just for the sake of exhibiting creativity or just thinking, oh, well, there's a chance that I could make something better. So it's really doing what's best for the patient and going with um, evidence in the end. Yeah, well, look, it's really about patient-centered care yeah. these days. I think that's something that we shouldn't lose focus on. And certainly when I'm training pharmacists, 
within our department in manufacturing, I always tell them that there's a patient at the end of that production line and that we, we, we need to be thinking about what's best for the patient rather than what's fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that raises an interesting analogy if um, you've got cars being built on a production line. I suppose there's a driver at the end of that production line of cars. Now, going back to medicine, though, um, there is obviously going to be some interaction between doctors and pharmacists, um, as well as any other healthcare professional. So do you have any advice for doctors who are interacting with you? Is there anything that we could do to make you know, things flow more smoothly? For example, if we could write more neatly or something like that. Any advice for young doctors? Um, I would say just be aware of what a pharmacist can do. We are here to help and we want to help as well. Uh, look, if you're struggling with writing prescriptions, if you don't know what to write on your, you know, your essay prescriptions, you know, talk to the pharmacist. We are there to help. We're there to be part of that multidisciplinary team. Um, if we do berate you because you can't <laughs> write that simple oxycodone script, look, um, admittedly it can be frustrating at times. Though I would say to any medical student, you know, open those lines of communication because communication is a two-way street. So um, I think it's, it would be really useful, I think from both sides, to communicate well and to respect each other and just understand that we're there to help each other. Because I think most pharmacists really want to be part of that healthcare team. You know, we, we are breaking away from the four walls of the dispensary and practicing forward pharmacy. So, you know, if you open your arms, we'll open ours. <laughs> and that's how a hug starts. <laughs> yes. All right. And what's the biggest mistake that you see doctors making with medications or prescriptions just in general? Um, I would say in a hospital setting, the root cause would be unfamiliarity. The fact is that we, we don't know the patients who are coming through our doors. We don't know their background. So doctors, you know, heaven forbid, sometimes get doses wrong. Sometimes they write doses, you know, that don't exist or, you know, um, you know strengths that don't exist. Um, I guess misreading. Mm. Um, charting up the wrong medications, like charting up, you know, a patient's wife's medications instead of that patient's right. medications. So, look, the fact is that a lot can go wrong when it comes to medications. And pharmacists are there really, I guess, as the medication stewardship, um, you know, um, agenda like you've heard of antimicrobial stewardship mm, yeah. you know where you have specialist doctors and pharmacists who are there to optimize the use of antimicrobials i think you could think of the hospital pharmacist as the medication stewardship um, person because we're really there to optimize rationalize the use of medications and helping doctors to prescribe appropriately both in terms of therapeutics evidence base but, but but um, also from the point of view of cost, I guess doctors really aren't aware of you know, the cost of treatment sometimes. And that's something that a hospital pharmacist can help with as well, you know, looking at the most cost-effective treatment. Okay. Now, with some of the errors you mentioned, for example, dosing or even the wrong medications or doses that don't exist, how do they get picked up and who's um, going to be the one to fix them? Is it the pharmacist? 
So look, I think everyone plays a role in optimizing medicines. Um, you know, nurses, doctors, allied health, pharmacists. I think pharmacists are in a unique position because we speak the language of medications fluently. And that's not, you know, to speak disparagingly of the other healthcare professions, but we specialize with medicines. So we can identify when something doesn't look or sound right. And I think never underestimate the importance of that skill because the fact is that a lot of errors do happen in hospitals which are related to medicines and having I guess one person of the healthcare team who's focused on that can be really helpful so it's for example understanding for example that you know when you crush a slow release you know um, narcotic medication is going to you know give you that massive release of narcotic in the one go it's things like that it's understanding for example that having to take six tablets of a particular strength to get the dose that's been written you know doesn't quite sound right and that's when we start to think you know is this the right strength should we be talking to the patient or their family to clarify this strength so that's where a hospital pharmacist can really help. It's basically, you know, identifying when something doesn't sound right and taking it that one step further. Okay. Yeah. And do you ever get a, um, you know, palpitations or do you ever get worried like, uh, I don't know if what I'm prescribing is right or, or maybe a, a little bit of hesitation about if you're making a new formulation, um, you don't know what the result's going to be? Um, so I would hope that when I've gotten to that stage, yeah. when I've reached the formulation yeah. stage, that would have the evidence in place that what we're going to make is going to be safe for the mm. patient. Yeah. So patient safety is certainly one thing that a hospital pharmacist always has in the back of their yeah. mind. Uh, look, do I ever have palpitations? So look, if I've done my job correctly, and I have my beta blockers within <laughs> reaching distance. Um, look, I would feel confident that we're doing the right thing and that we've explored all of the options. At least the best we can with the information and evidence we have, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, it's quite different to how things may have been, you know, 40 or 50 years ago mm -hmm. where... You know, if you were having a migraine, you might front up to your local community pharmacy and ask them to mix something up. Um, we, we, we don't practice pharmacy like that these days. We, we go with what's safe for the patient. We go with what the evidence is. And if neither of the above boxes are ticked, then we probably wouldn't go down that path. We'd be talking to the doctor and saying, I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah. It's not safe. There's no evidence. Okay. Yeah, and speaking of patient safety, of course, if you're a doctor who's um, made some kind of error, hopefully only a small one if it happens, but if you're in that case, obviously you have to make amends and try and correct it as soon as possible for the patient. Do you have any advice for when doctors get in that situation? I mean, should they feel embarrassed? Are people going to judge them? Is there a particular way to handle having made a medication error? Um, so, look... Um New South Wales Health has a culture of being open. So if, if you look at the core values of New South Wales Health, collaboration, openness, respect and empowerment, well, I think it's important when you have made a mistake, 
um, to admit it and just be open about it. Don't try to cover it up because that's not part of the philosophy of patient care these days. Um, look, we're here to help. Um, I would hope that no one would make you feel bad if you did make a mistake. Look, we're all human. Pharmacists make mistakes as well. So I think we, we need to you know, approach this the proper way. Um, I think just, just understand that when a pharmacist does approach you, you know, to say, look, I think you know, you've made a mistake here, I've checked this and this, and I think you know, this dosage should be you know, X milligrams rather than you know, X squared milligrams, um, listen to what they have mm. to say um, and you know, move forward. Um, I, I don't think it's ever helpful to dwell on your mistakes or to find scapegoats or to blame others. Um, so look, I, I don't think that's helpful and it's certainly not in line with the core values of New South Wales Health. Yeah, so better to fix it, um, learn from it as soon as possible and move on and certainly to try and cover it up is going to be much worse for the patient and much worse for yourself so if anyone watches the big bang theories that there's that episode where sheldon gets roped into telling a lie and then to try and compensate for that one lie he tries to tell another lie and it becomes so complicated just trying to cover it up so obviously in any aspect of healthcare, um any dosing um, errors or any other small errors um, it's always better to just try and um, handle them as ethically and as promptly as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Now, we've been talking about manufacturing pharmacy. Um, in general, in hospital pharmacy, how can doctors contact you? I mean, are you available 24 hours a day or do you generally have business hours, like 9 to 5? When are pharmacists usually around? So most hospital pharmacy departments would be open business hours. Most wards in public hospitals would have a designated ward pharmacist who would be looking after the patients on that ward. Some of the more forward-thinking hospital pharmacists will have a pharmacist attached to each medical team, which I think is the way forward. I think it makes it more of a collaborative uh, workplace when you have a dedicated pharmacist you know, tagging along with the um, the cardiology team or the neurology team. So regardless of what the situation is, there should be a dedicated pharmacist looking after each patient um, in a hospital. And it's a matter of just identifying how to contact them. It could be you know, via their pager number. Uh, they may even be on the ward um, you know, during those business hours. Uh, in the after-hour sitting, most hospitals would have an on-call pharmacist. Okay that you can contact. If you have one of those really sticky situations and you want pharmacy input into, you could um, you know, always contact the on-call pharmacist. Uh, look, I know a lot of doctors who actually have the mobile numbers of the pharmacist that you know, works with them on the ward that they're looking after. So you know, those sort of relationships do develop as well. You know, those mutually respectful working relationships so there's a number of ways that the pharmacy can be contacted. Yeah, and does it ever go the other way, that the pharmacist has to urgently contact a doctor on the team? I think that happens a lot, um, particularly when we identify something isn't right and it could be compromising patient safety. So, you know, sometimes if we can't contact the team, it could be contacting the after-hours doctor. Um, if we 
can't get through to the, the resident or the intern, we may need to escalate to the registrar or even the consultant if we feel that there's something that's quite serious that needs an urgent review. So yes, it, it does work both ways. Okay, and in the end, uh, what it comes down to is great evidence and communication between healthcare professionals and admitting mistakes. That's yeah. what it sounds like, yeah. All of the above. Yeah. Yes. Now, we have been talking about pharmacy, but there is some also exciting news for you as an individual. Um, so in a couple of weeks' time, you'll be moving to a new role in eHealth. So could you tell us a bit about eHealth? Mm-hmm. So, look, I've been on the front line of healthcare for the past 30 years, 20 years in community pharmacy and almost 10 years in hospital pharmacy. So I'm looking further afield. So I'm moving to another branch of New South Wales Health called eHealth. And what eHealth does is that it creates and maintains computer programs to support the frontline staff, which means doctors, nurses, pharmacists, allied health. So look, I'm using my skills and my knowledge to, I guess, um, do something outside the sphere of conventional pharmacy. Um, and I feel that I've reached a position where I can really use that knowledge and skills to do that. So my job will be to support the frontline staff in maintaining and creating those computer programs. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it will be a challenge, but it's something that you know I'm, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, and I think that really emphasizes where medicine is going. So um, personalized, individualized medicine, um, computers and technology, and of course, podcasts in medicine. So this is where the future is at for us. So thank you so much for your time, Alan. We've got a much better idea of hospital pharmacy and manufacturing pharmacy. And we look forward to um, hearing more about exciting fields in medicine in the next episode. Thank you all. Thank you.